the banks are really facing this huge transition. So they've got uh, these old legacy mainframe systems. I think that's kind of coming to a head. They're starting to think about, okay, I'm going to need to redevelop these systems that they were originally engineered by engineers who should now retire. And there isn't real, a real way to maintain those. What is up, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Big Ideas in App Architecture podcast. Our guest today is Chris Tura, who works as a director at PwC. In today's podcast, we talk about Chris's amazing career and work at PwC, his passion for distributed computing to open source projects and advice around how engineers and architects should go about implementing the latest tech trends for end users and their customer experience. So pump up that volume for an insightful conversation with Chris Tura. All right. Awesome. Well, welcome to the podcast, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I've said a bit busy, but uh, now happy to be here. Awesome. Well, busy is usually good. When it's not busy, that's when uh, you're like, well, I'm not sure what to do, especially for someone like you who's been so active uh, in the distributed space and open source community and working on cool things uh, in VWC, right? Yeah. I mean, well, there there's different types of busy, I think. The um, uh, I think today was more of one of those uh, the busy talkative types of things, right? You know, the um, busy coding is a, a different area. It's probably one that I prefer a bit more. But nevertheless, <laughs> both good types of busy espers. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, well, but what we'll do is we'll just jump into this podcast conversation. And first of all, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to, you know, accept and finding some time for us to get on uh, this podcast. And, you know, what I was doing while I was researching you, I was looking at, um, what you've done in your career, right? So you've had this amazing career, almost 20 years, wearing different hats from software engineer to chief architect to now being a director at PwC. Uh, what what I was thinking about was 20 years ago, how did Chris, a young Chris, decide that this is what I wanted to do? So maybe we'll start the conversation by getting to know uh, like what motivated you to get into tech and uh, just uh, where you started. It's actually, it actually stretches back further than, uh, than 20 years. The, uh, 20 years is on my LinkedIn. Okay. Like go back to the trilogy, it's probably 24, 25. The, um, so I actually, um, I love, uh, programming on computers. And part of the reason for that is that, um, I used to like to, I, I think I wanted to play video games but my parents wouldn't buy them for me. So at a certain point I decided if I, I took the kind of Sam's teach yourself C in 21 days, I used to write them myself. And part of the reason was, is that you know, I, I couldn't get them otherwise. The, uh, so that, that's kind of the reason, the way I got into coding in terms of um, why I chose technology actually was that, you know, when I was at university, there was, a, I was a bit mixed and I wanted to do a mixture of, um, it was either English literature or uh, software development, which is an interesting mix of the two things. Um, but in the end, I opted for software uh, because simply there was more money into it. This is much money in being an author unless you're famous. And I, you know, do the statistics on that. And yeah, it just tells you a bit about my analytical mindset. I've always been a bit uh, more analytical than creative. That's awesome. You made the right choice. That's awesome. So when you started your career, um, was you, did you start off as a software engineer uh, directly? Like, was that what you wanted to do and that was what you followed? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, I'd always worked to try and uh, be a software engineer. So very first program I wrote was actually of my own kit. So I... I wrote a uh, inventory management system for a, uh, a small shop called S&G Computers that used to repair uh, computers in San Diego, uh, assemble, you know, the clones, uh, the old PC clones back then. 
and that I built this inventory system for them to know what was in the shop and, you know, who was coming into the shop and who was, uh, um, who had things to repair and what their names were and some of the inventory off the back of that. And I had written that in C and behind that, I'd written actually my own database as well, because clearly, you know, I couldn't afford to license any software way back then. So you didn't have anything and everything was quite expensive. So I, I built that with, um, it was Borland C at the time, Hug version compiler on Windows. Awesome. I, I wish you were, you could have thought a young Chris, like if there was a lot of open source databases at that time, things would have been so much more easier. So many things would have been easier if they were today. I, you know, I train a lot of people in my career and I keep telling them, you guys are incredibly lucky. You have all the information you possibly want at your fingertips. I remember hanging out in bookstores to try and read the books that I couldn't afford to buy to learn, you know, some of the programming concepts and, you know, different frameworks at the time, which were actually quite complex. I think we bet it way too easy nowadays. I agree. I think I have a similar thought, right? I feel like the day we are right now in today's day and age, right? The amount of locations or places where you can get information is so easy. Now, I mean, of course, we will talk about this towards the end also, as I was thinking is like with ChatGPT, you can actually write a boilerplate code with just a few lines of prompt, you know? So it, it's fascinating how things are right now. Uh, so let's, let's you know, accelerate uh, the conversation to where you are right now, which is you're now the director at PwC. And uh, how does what you do each day kind of matter at PwC? What is it that you do? So actually, I've, I've recently moved um, roles laterally. So I used to work with clients in banking and capital market space. And it was a really, that was a really interesting thing to do because the banks are really facing this huge transition. So they've got uh, these old legacy mainframe systems, I think that's kind of coming to a head. They're starting to think about, okay, I'm going to need to redevelop these systems that they were originally engineered by engineers who should now retire. And there isn't real, a real way to maintain those. I think those systems came from, you know, the days when I was programming back in C and building inventory systems, right? They, so it's, that was a skill set where programming was for the few and not for the many. Hmm. And those few just aren't there anymore. And the the many that we have today don't have the same understanding and the same appreciation for the hardware and how the so hardware and the software bind together. So a lot of those systems are not maintainable in the way that they were. They aren't providing the same efficiency and value that they were before. So it was very interesting to, to go and chat with banks, the insurance companies, understand their transitions, the journey across from those legacy systems into more modern architectures and thinking about how you have to actually change the way applications are designed to meet the challenge, right? Because distributed systems, which are kind of the way cloud applications are defined today, I'd, I'd call um, Kubernetes basically the operating system for the cloud. Yeah, Build distributed systems by default. Microservices architecture patterns lead themselves to that. And clearly, you know, the, the nice distributed database systems which we find ourselves uh, with today, now they even offer asset compliance. You know, things that you couldn't dream of before. I think best you could get back in the day was in the kind of Cassandra stuff and Otherwise, you'd be limited in the horizontal scale that you could have. So that was a very exciting chapter. But while I was doing that, I worked for another department in PwC, and I, I um, built uh, one of PwC's, um, not only, but pretty much software products called something called Cloud Cost Assurance, which is focused on performance analytics and the um, how do you build efficient software for the cloud. And if you haven't, it would point out, you know, where you haven't done that, how much money you were wasting by having done that and what you may able to do, be able to do to remediate that and helping customers really slice millions off their cloud bill by you know, adopting that type of software. is quite proud of that. And that set me up for the role that I'm in today, which is um, thinking about 
how as PwC, we can be building software that's going to help our clients and accelerate the time to market. So, you know, um, consulting is a very traditional type of uh, type piece of work. You do everything bespoke for a client and there isn't much muscle memory or knowledge that goes into that. So this new challenge, now that we have generative AI of thinking about how we can codify some of that knowledge, deliver consistency to our clients, you know, incre- increased value for the same amount of money. All of that's important, especially given the cost of living crisis we're all in today. So I'm very excited to be in that new role and to, you know, see what I can do as part of pushing the codification agenda inside of PwC and, and driving those types of engagements with more modern architectures and you know, systems which are going to get you uh, going off the bat and clearly delivering much higher quality than we would have been able But that's awesome. Runs of modern technology. So yeah, very, quite excited. But that's awesome. So Chris, tell us about this product that you've worked on in the sense that you, when you work with different, you know, companies who are in the banking space, how does a product really look at the, you know, old legacy hardware and then recommend a journey towards cloud? Like, what did you have to kind of consider when you were building this together to give that recommendation? So there's was a bit of secret sauce. So, okay. The, so the, the key to that software is we have developed an algorithm. It's actually maths that I, I wrote up on. I still remember the whiteboard where I wrote this stuff up on and we kind of tweaked the, uh, the algorithm to, to, to make it work. But we've come up with a way to combine the core metrics for compute. So, um, the CPU memory, um, the disk IO and network IO for the interaction between different systems, because, you know, systems, um, software today isn't designed for a single piece of machinery. It's designed across multiple pieces of machinery. And the real challenge is not how you benchmark the performance of a piece of software on a single machine that serves no purpose, but more, how does it behave across a big distributed system and how do you get a number for that? So we came up with, um, a calculation, which gives us the transaction per dollar ratio and using that, which is a proxy for computational density, we're then able to look at various scenarios, various different, uh, architecture um, patterns, um, for the lack of a better word, brute force them against the, um, computational density ratio that we have based on, you know, um, some of the analytics that we've built and some of the tuning and tanning we've done across the different infrastructure components and come up with a, this is the best way to do that. It's the most cost efficient way. It's the way you get highest TPD. And, uh, based on that, then we'll make the recommendations on how you actually move from A to B, what that's going to save you. That's brilliant. Yeah. So one, one of the things that you brought was the the fact that enterprises are typically looking to like save and bring more value, right? So I know the co- challenge of cost is there, but what else have you observed as a challenge for enterprises or companies who are trying to, you know, modernize? I know banking sector is heavily mainframe or and that adds its own challenges. So when you go into conversation, what are the things that you feel companies need to consider when they're looking at moving to modern infrastructure and thinking about distributed scale, like what's the motivation? So I think there are, there are possibly two answers to that. So I think there's a story on the business side and there's a story on the technical side. And as you can tell, I'm a bit more of a technologist, so I'll answer the technical one first because I think that's it's quite interesting. So mainframes are really fast and they're quite easy to develop scalable applications on because they have the right components to ensure you know, base things like management of transactions, rollback, acid compliance, um, 100% uptime. They give you all of this stuff for free, really big boxes that manage this at a hardware level. So yeah, this type of software that you would build on those, you could make monolith scale and you could do so quite easily, provided of course you knew how to develop on mainframes and knew how to use the subsystem components. 
move that into the distributed age and all of a sudden components can fail at any time, right? And you see this kind of in the early designs of Netflix design, ultimate resilience, high scalability with things like Chaos Monkey running and destroying things just to prove that it will be up all the time, right? You've got the same sort of model, but very, very different architecture patterns and designs. So what you have to wait for to enable these enterprise systems is how do you bring that very complicated architecture and make it consumable by the masses so that the transition can take place? And I think that took quite a bit of time. So Kubernetes was clearly a building block, um, distributed computing systems, the ability to break down the problem into small components, uh, loosely coupled architectures, the, the ability to deploy different components, different times without any downtime. So big enabler there. And then of course, you, then you had to solve for the data layer. And for the longest time you had uh, distributed databases, yes, but they were eventually consistent. And only of recent times you've start to see some of the asset compliant distributed systems come into place. And so the more modern distribution protocols come about and then you've got patterns around, I think the two components, Cockroach clearly is, is one of my favorite solutions. You know, it's a distributed SQL database based on Raft. Absolutely brilliant. I uh, quite like that. And then of course you have enabling components like Kafka and Zookeeper, which came out of, um, you know, Kafka in its own right is, is, is quite unique in the way that it's, uh, it manages scale and it's, uh, um, it allows you to build, um, software components that are more reactive than uh, traditional imperative programming paradigms. So that um, that was a really big enabler to, to building distributed systems in these large scale systems. And then of course you had, I think the father of all of these was the Hadoop ecosystem when started the big data revolution came about and some of the, comp- the components that came out of that um, open source initiative. Yeah. I was going to say, when you were saying that, I was just thinking like I had a similar struggle, like uh, when I was working on applications and I've, I've used Spark heavily in my career before as, as I was working on data science stuff and we would do a lot of data engineering. And so I know how Hadoop was amazing, but then Spark came in at the right time to do in-memory processing and everybody was like, wow, this is way quicker than what we expect with Hadoop. And again, with talking about distributed uh, you know, databases, used Cassandra for, for a long time, was working on Cassandra, part of the community. And again, I would go into creating new software and new requirements and I would see eventual consistency was something that I was looking for and it would not do it. And my introduction to Cockroach also was basically because I was looking for something that had consistency, but at the same time was distributed and gave that performance. So I feel like that is the paradigm where we are naturally reached because in 2007 and six, when these two influential papers were written at uh, you know AWS as well as at Google, uh, that led to the formation of something like Cassandra. Um, I feel like at that time, nobody thought consistency. They were looking at, well, how can we squeeze the most amount of transactions and data into the machines um, that we are having in a distributed way, but never considered the scenarios where you needed consistency. And uh, so I I definitely feel like that's a challenge. And I'm glad that you and your team are kind of tackling that for enterprises, right? Um, When you talk to architects, what is the biggest challenge that you see when you tell them, hey, you need to consider a distributed architecture when they have worked on something monolithic for such a long time. So I, I think there's, I think this goes back to the question of before of the, there, there's a business problem behind change. And this problem is actually associated with risk. So a lot of these systems that they're trying to fix and replace are very complex. And um, as I mentioned, the, the differences in uh, monolithic architectures, things that you'd find on mainframe, things you'd find in traditional three-tier systems, et cetera, those, they're very difficult to break apart and to break them apart successfully without breaking the, let's say breaking the basket of eggs is very, very difficult. 
So I would say that the majority of people I talk to are, are challenged by um, this amount of change. They're challenged by the risk that introduces and often are quite wary of, uh, of being able to communicate that change and um, manage the risk around it. And hence, uh, you do see um, slowness in the ecosystem in terms of modernization. Um, and to a certain extent, you have to wonder to which point traditional businesses will be able to sustain without the risk and and not change whilst the incumbents are building on new modern platforms, which are um, distributed and of much, much lower cost complexity, higher availability with uh, a series of other advantages behind them. I think what we're, what we're seeing in reality is that the digital channel has greatly expanded. So digital is now first, it's part of the fabric. It's part of who we are. And this is ever more true for the up and coming generations. So I, I think there is, there is now is the time for a lot of that modernization to take place. But what I am still seeing in business is there's a lot of risk aversion, especially on the change agenda. And I think there is difficulty in quantifying or qualifying the motivation for that change. So I'm talking about defining the core business cases around basically changing a piece of software, which has worked for decades. Uh-huh. And it's very difficult to kind of bite the bullet and say, yeah, we need to do that. And you find instances of organizations that are doing that, but equally, I think you find far more which are still sitting on the fence and waiting to see what happens. Right. So when you talk about the the challenge itself and people having that risk aversion, when when you go in, what are the key things um, that you identify as are the selling factor for distributed architecture uh, that you have to present to these people? Uh, and that helps them get convinced, okay, I know this software has worked for such a long time, but what Chris is saying makes sense. Like this is where the future is, right? So what are those, I know you brought up consistency. Um, what When you talk about business cases, we, you just mentioned high availability. Could you just expand that a bit more? So I, I think it's, um, I think you have to give them comfort that the new systems are going to do what the old systems are going to do. And the next biggest problem is how do you modernize um, progressively? So, um, modern architectures allow you to upgrade without risk, but it only works if the entire system is modern. So one of the biggest challenges, is how do you architect in that hybrid way so that you enable the transition from one architecture pattern to the other and acknowledging that that may take an, you know, a large quantity of time. At the same time, you're going to have an evolution of the newer, um, software paradigms whilst having the necessity to maintain the old. So it's that managing the pace of that transition such that you can move across progressively, I think is one of the biggest challenges that you see. And it's the type of modernization, which I would go out and propose to my clients. You can't really do things big bang. That's very risky, very expensive. And you don't know whether it's going to work on top of that. There's uh, the risks around waterfall. I mean, you're migrating something, which basically it's a train that's running. So you really need to get on that journey and start to do it progressively so that you can enhance and follow the market because the market is 100%. So I was just trying to also kind of think about when you were saying in the last 10 years, especially the last 10 years, um, you know, we, we have had the advent of cloud and distributed technology, but there's also been a push towards serverless, right? Like a lot of people are like, hey, let's not even put these things together. Let's say serverless. How much do, does serverless come into, you know, conversation for you? And even with, um, you know, the PwC software that you have, which you call cloud cost assurance, do you consider serverless as a, a solution that you present to these people? I think the, 
it's interesting that we call it a solution. I, I like to think as technology as tools. So um, you've got a hammer, you've got nails, you've got you know uh, some wood, and ultimately you need to assemble a solution, which is, which is a business problem. It's not so the the, the solution is really uh, how do you solve the business problem, which is a piece of software assembled from the toolbox um, and the combination of people that then service that demand. And serverless is a tool, um, as all the others. And if you think about its computational density, and I think you have to pair it with its economics. So on, from a compute density perspective, serverless is very high, hmm. right? Because the unitary function only runs for the timeline in which that function is necessary to run. Right. So compute density is very high, but the, um, let's say the economics that govern then serverless can be different depending on the provider and depending on the way in which you deploy services. So we look at the differences between AWS's Lambda versus Knative. So framework running on Kubernetes, in one case you have um, an instantiated baseline. Clearly you're able to utilize the nodes on an exceptional basis, but you do have uh, a base overhead to run that. Lambda has no overhead, but it has a cost per execution. So right. depending on the volumes that you're putting, that you're running through the system, each of those patterns will be more or less effective in delivering the right financial results. So the thing is, is that there isn't really a um, by default do serverless. There isn't an easy answer to that. It depends on where you are. So if you're a startup and you're unsure about what you're building, serverless is a great idea. Is that going to be the answer going forward? Well, maybe not, right? Because as the volumes increase, then it may become more efficient to have um, provision of the architecture, of the, the infrastructure permanently to service the demand of your clients and that may become more efficient. 100%. I think I, I agree with that thought as well, you know, because I've, I observed that when you start something, when you're doing something from scratch, serverless is definitely a good place to start. But as you scale, you know, that the, the cost and the value of serverless kind of depletes a little bit and you may want to consider a provisional in, you know, infrastructure. That makes sense. So um, let's pivot to a question that I've been meaning to ask you for a while. And since we had a last conversation, just prepping was, you are a great enthusiast of distributed you know, systems, but you're also an avid contributor to open source, right? So uh, tell us about how you got into open source technology before I know you were writing your own database, but uh, tell us more about how you got into open source technology, uh, what value that has brought to you personally in terms of uh, you know, the effect that's had on you and your career. Open source has always been... Um, something I've, I've believed it. Right? And I think as part of the, we go back to the library story where I just libraries to read books, I mean, access to knowledge um, and the access to build new things has to be free. And open source enables this. It enables people to collaborate without boundaries. It enables innovation. And if we look at innovation, right? So where are these distributed systems coming from? Where is this new technology coming from? It's coming from the open source community because it's about smart people coming together and doing things they're passionate about. And I think um, it's one of the things when people do things for passion, they just turn out better. And in terms of the open source community, that's exactly why I continue to contribute today across a variety of things, including owning my own project, which is the, the Eclipse Gemma project, which you can go and check out on open source and distributed compute engine uh, for Java with um, the horizontal, uh, horizontal scale over uh, verticalization of compute workload with uh, little to no footprint or overhead based on Kubernetes or bare metal or the trying to solve the problem of Java startup times and you know, being able to make better use of the JVM, but you've got a variety of these things. K-Native is 
a similar solution maybe with a, a tighter overhead, but broader use case across different functional environments. Um, and then you've got, you know, other passions I still like to write in C, so in the Postgres community, and um, I'm passionate about data distribution in Spark. But the, it's the, the ability of these um, organizations, and depending on whether it's a small open source project that starts from nothing, or, you know, the more mature open source projects with their, you know, their politics and governance, it's incredibly exciting to be able to be part of what is the future of technology. And you don't need a job to do that. You don't need anybody to accept. You just need to write good code and that's it. And it's that low boundary and that meritocracy, which I think is uh, just fascinating to be part of. I agree. I think it's fascinating how open source has evolved, right? And there was a, there was a time when everybody was really careful about picking open source technology and to start off with this. But then from there, we have had these amazing communities for, you know, Kafka or Cassandra. Even we Cockroach, we have a great community of folks who are using the open source product that we kind of provide. Um, my, I, my personally uh, experience has been Spark. I use so much open source Spark that I reached a point where I had to start using, you know, other things to kind of feel like, okay, I'm too heavily involved in Spark. Uh, so for you personally, what was the first open source project that you tried um, that I, I'm just curious to know what that was? bit of open source I contributed was a, um, it was a CRUB generator for PHP. Hmm. I, I don't remember, it's probably still on GitHub, but the, uh, basically it was a, it was a tool that would generate a PHP scaffolding for a Postgres, uh, I think it was a time 6.5, uh, database and it will give you kind of full end to end CRUD capabilities off, basically built off the database schema. So it would go and read the database scheme and assemble the, the, um, the, the CRUD application off the basis of that, generate the code so you can modify it and then off you go, right? So, and I thought I was, you know, everybody was using PHP to build CRUD applications at the time. So I thought it was a good thing to give back to the community. That's awesome. I mean, I'm glad that you just don't feel like you're one of those people who wants to use what the community brings out, but you also want to contribute to the community and kind of help it shape. Um, you've been really involved in the Kubernetes uh, community and as watching and reading your LinkedIn post around Knative and uh, some recommendations around infrastructure uh, that you are saying, hey, why can't we have a minimum of 4 MB of RAM to just run some infrastructure? Tell me more about that. So, so there, there's an interesting debate, right? So I was having this with one of my colleagues who is, uh, you know, he, he comes from, uh, I think it's database Cloudera world. Yeah. Mitchell, uh, recommend it. The guys is really great. Um, and we were talking about the need to eliminate the boilerplate. So one of the one of the things about Kubernetes is that there's a whole lot of config and there's a whole lot of boilerplate and you've got the operating system underneath and the libraries and just the footprint is really, really high. And, you know, we're we're looking at this and in reality, all you want to do is execute some business logic, which tends to be, you know, 20, 30 lines of code. Why is there all the faff, right? And if I think about a serverless um, platform, serverless platform is really just about loading a library instantiating some scaffolding around it and running it and then exiting. And if you think about this at a very basic level, you could, you could do this with a C++ application in FFI and it would occupy a few kilobytes of memory. And so, yeah, one, my, my, um, my thought process is, is actually, this is part of the, the application framework I'm putting together and some of the designs I was putting together. And I was looking at the base requirements and I'm like, well, that's a whole load of resources just to instantiate, just to be able to run something, you know, 
If I think about you know, going back to the days, you used to be able to run entire email servers for 11,000 people on 386s. So clearly, I mean, the computers have become faster, but the software has become far more inefficient. And there's a question of, you know, which has gone faster than the other. 100%. Yeah. So I, I saw the debate and I was like curious that you are on this side where you're like, well, why can't we just get things started quickly? Am I right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a, a, a loading a library, loading a, a shared object takes right. seconds, microseconds even. Um, running that within the context of an existing application where the memory is already loaded again, microseconds. So um, there really is no, uh, that no reason that I can see as to uh, why you would need all the scaffolding. Got it. Yeah. Well, you know, think about the way Kubernetes works and that I can instantiate multiple pods that do that. I can share disk between them. They can all have access to the same infrastructure and applications. You have dynamic routing, you've got service catalogs, you've got all the rest of this. So there, there is all, there are, there are a variety of different ways in which you can do this and still make it safe, still make it secure, still make it scalable, still make it immutable, et cetera. Um, and you could put all the scaffolding on top with the, uh, and the rest web services, proto buffers, anything you like. Um, because that's all that all sits within the framework executing the business logic. Right. I think that's the key, right? Because when you're passionate about something, right? And I think I've seen this in other communities as well. When you're passionate about building something, you sometimes have a single-minded thought process and sometimes business logic is not considered as much or we forget about what the struggle that somebody who's going to use this you know, project may have. And what you bring uh, to the table is some really good real-life experience on how enterprises would want to use this, uh, you know, as they put the software in production or something like that. So tell me about an instance where you, I, I'm, I'm just uh, asking this question because I'm always curious about bad things that have happened when you use a software that you really believe in. So tell me an instance uh, from your career where you really believe that, hey, this is the right direction. And then you put that into production and something really went off and you were like, oh my God, this is not what we thought is going to happen. That's a that's an interesting question. I'm not sure about that. Um, oh, so so actually, there is a there is a story about that. So at a certain point, I wanted, I was looking to, um, and it, it should have been something simple. So at the time, I was uh, working for a small company, and um, one of the services that we offered was uh, email servers. So everybody's you know email time, and there was a new project based on um, God, I forget, the Avalon framework for Apache. I don't know if it exists anymore. And there was a, an email software called James, which was built on this. Uh, framework and it's quite new, uh, but it had the advantage of being in Java, it had the advantage of being flexible. It was, you know, had an aspect oriented programming paradigm. It was composable. It was from there. They logically, it looked pretty cool. And so we said, all right, well, you know, let's, let's use this as the email server, right? And that thing was plagued with problems. We, we ended up having to write an enormous amount of code and plugins and whatnot to make it work. Um, but in, there are two sides of that story. So at a certain, so it was interesting to go and fix it. But at the same time, it was just something that should have worked and something that you would have never wanted to, to actually get into or modify or, or change in any way. Right. And I, I think that's the key. The key is, you know, when you're building software to consider how easy it would be to roll back, right? And I feel like sometimes I've had instances where we believed in a project and something and we take that code and start doing that. It works really well for the first, second day. And then suddenly on the third day, you start having issues and you're like looking for documentation, how to roll this back because the community has never thought about putting that documentation together. So I've had instances like that, um, you know, working on some uh, things as well. All right. So let's pivot to a question uh, that, 
you know, any podcast you go to now is going to have is what are your thoughts around generative AI and how, you know, especially enterprises in finance and, uh, you know, PwC, how are you guys thinking about leveraging that uh, in terms of the grand architecture? That's an interesting, so actually it's in the PwC slogan around technology. So PwC have a human-led tech-powered ethos. And I actually think this is probably the best way to describe where we stand with generative AI today. So if we, you go back and, um, so at the day, uh, way back when Sun Microsystems said that actually a good way to introduce inference into software was something called sensible defaults. And so the software would suggest a series of things and you would say, mm, that looks like the right thing. And of course, at the time, it didn't learn anything and the suggestions were quite simple and whatnot. Like generative AI is kind of in the, sim- in, in the same place. It's a productivity tool. So it, what it does really, really well is deliver quite verbose, sometimes accurate, sometimes not, answers to uh, very short pointed questions. And as human beings, we like verboseness. We like eloquency in language. That's part of the, one of the reasons why the, my other passion was English literature, because it's nice to describe things and you know, listen to the tonality and whatnot. And the brilliant sort of thing. Equally, when you communicate with uh, pretty much anybody, even as we're doing today, right? I'm going to use big, nice words, try not to repeat the same things twice. And you know, there's a certain tonality to that. And people like that. So in the same way, I think generative AI is a, it's a brilliant enabler all along. So it, it helps us to write code from concepts. That's brilliant. Does that take away from, I want to optimize that particular piece of code so that I can shift memory around with low level C? Probably not. It's not really going to do it the way I'd like to do it because I like to see it written in a certain way with certain macros. And certain, Is it going to give me the scaffolding to then start to change it to make it look like something that I want? Yeah, it's going to help me to do that. It's going to make it a bit faster so I can get around and kind of get on with the job and move on to the next exciting thing that I want to do. So it, it's going to allow us to be that more productive equally. You know, we all have a series of bullet points of things we want to say. How many times have we toiled over putting that into an email? Again, beautiful, beautiful use case for generative AI, where we can give it the concepts, we come up with something, tweak it ever so slightly, and off it goes. So it allows us to do our jobs quicker, faster, faster better. Um, and I think it'll only improve. So I, I really do see it in that productivity space. And it's part of the area where I look to, you know, when I think about how do I bring that to business, it's let's look at some of those areas where you have those interactions. How can we enhance those interactions? How can we enhance the way in which your employees work? How do we make their lives better by introducing generative AI so that they can do better things? They can make your customers happy. They can deliver a better service. And I think that's really what generative AI is going to enable for us. We're all going to be able to get that time back to deliver the quality that we need to do, which is going to overall make the world a better place to live in. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I also look at it in a similar way um, around how it helps. It does provide great boilerplate code that you can use and get started with. But at the same time, I think your point on human-led ethos of having human intervention is so critical to if you're trying to build anything unique, right? Uh, so one of the questions I also wanted to tee up was around the ethics of AI. That, and I know you have been an advocate of, you know, looking at that. Uh, we recently were looking at uh, a post by Sam Altman about a month ago, and I was also kind of following that and con- having a conversation around how do you look at the ethics around AI and generative AI and uh, how to use it, especially when you work out of UK and, uh, uh, you know, the data and data security and data privacy is very important. 
Uh, how do you get, see all of that coming together uh, with AI and th- that idea of ethics? So there is this concept of data sharing, right? And I think we, I think you have to be as careful sharing data with AI as you would be sharing data on social media. So it's out there, it's out there, right? I mean, that, that, that I don't see much of a challenge with. Like we, we, we make that a bit bigger problem than it naturally is. It's if we use common sense and we um, think about, you know, would we share that with the world? Right. Um, you're probably going to go the right way. If the answer is no, you shouldn't. Now, equally, generative AI are models and you can train LLMs for use within business so that you can share those within a smaller community. And those are enabled and you can you should absolutely do that to enhance the productivity of your business so that you can have wider impact. Um, so it's, it's the time and place. And for certain things, public LLMs are going to be useful, right? As social media is today, uh, or as the search engines are for that matter, anything in public domain clearly is going to be accessible via the search engines anyway. So your opinions are everywhere. Um, the, the twist to generative AI is that you're now adding knowledge into the community and that knowledge can then be regurgitated in a format, which is, and let's say non-IP protected. Um, and, and there may be a bit of legislation not actually catching up with that. So copyright law is quite old and may need to modernize for generative AI to work. There's a bit of a legis- legislative angle to that. Um, but largely the, um, the, the ethics around the use of it in terms of not losing your data is, is something that can be managed with a bit of common sense, with a bit of guidance. I think one of the things that's more worrying is what impact is that going to have on how we go about structuring and optimizing our businesses? So every wave of modernization, right? And so the, all the industrial revolutions and whatnot have had winners and losers. And it's how do we be a bit fairer about who those winners and losers are and how do we learn to share the wealth, something not been good within the past and something which isn't really um, cabled into the fabric of capitalism. So I, one of the things I said before is generative AI will make the world a better place if we enable better customer experiences. If we deliver the same customer experiences or worse, because we can get that without people, then we're not going to have advanced any further. In fact, we'll have only gone backwards. And I don't know who that benefits. So I think we just have to be conscious in enterprises and businesses as to how we deploy that to make sure that we're upping the game and not the contrary. Right. So you're basically looking at, um, you know, avoiding the scenario where just because something is a trend and something looks fancy doesn't mean that it's something that you need to apply because your software might not need it. Like, do you think that's also the case where everybody's like talking about AI and using it because everybody's trying to think about it, but they really might be struggling to have a use case where it might need to be applied? Mm, So, I mean, that's an interesting, I think, you know, incorporating the latest thing is sometimes good, sometimes bad, depending on whether it's applicable. Now, generative AI is an interesting one because it's got so many use cases. So could you, are you ramming it in? It's a difficult question to ask. But then again, I've seen lots of people ram frameworks in all over the place. Um, I'm I'm certain uh, if anybody who's ever programmed in Spring has seen the orgy of design patterns that comes out of uh, the the applications which are written within that, even if they're not necessary. Um, So there's always good and bad use of technology and will people inevitably get it wrong? Yeah, maybe. Um, Are there a whole lot of use cases that regenerative AI should be? Yeah, absolutely. As with all things, good business sense is going to tell us and experience feedback from customers. I think will tell us whether incorporating that has been good or bad based on whether they find it useful or not. Awesome. Yeah. So just when you were saying, I was thinking, 
when where you are from with your amazing experience and recommendations and consulting experience and working in open source what would be your advice be to listeners who are architects and engineers who see different projects and different ai you know say ai projects or uh, you know solutions that they feel like they need to apply or you know to their product what is your advice to them around how to make that decision you know and what would be your 1 2 3 4 5 steps be uh, on hey look at this look at this look at this look at this and then if you feel this makes sense apply that to the project uh, that you're working on like i'm i'm curious to see what how you approach it and what your advice would be and i think well my advice is more more ask and listen right so actually the uh, as software engineers architects engineering community in general we're terrible at listening to the people that use our stuff and i think one of the one of the things to be successful with generative ai and the artificial intelligence in general is you really have to get a sense for how people are using your software um you have that sense you'll figure out where ai fits best and how it fits best and where it's going to deliver value as opposed to just being there because we want to call it say the buzzword and put it in our marketing material it has to be tied to the user experience and in general yeah i think we have gone a bit downhill in terms of looking at the user experience um yeah. with the exception of a few companies which are you know user centric and clearly uh, laser focused on you know how is the user going to feel how are they going to interact how how great is the software going to be for the end user to to use i think we've been uh, quite industrialized and requirements led and, and not always had the end user at the at the heart of what we've been delivering um, and i think all engineers are guilty of this to to one extent or other um right the difference is when you're you know building an extra um an extra bit of scaffolding or implementing an extra pattern in spring the end user they're not really going to see that so it's probably not great but okay um on the generative ai side hammering it in in some place where no one's ever going to use it maybe more noxious and do more harm than good so there's probably a bit more listening necessary there right so the biggest advice is make sure you're listening to your users listen to the business use case or understand the business objectives is what you're thinking is the best approach end users end users you got it because the business objectives again business are not always um they're not always attuned to customers and end users got it 100% so as we you know i know we have a few more minutes left before we go you know tell us more about what you're passionate about when you're not working on technology i know you're an active uh, you know uh technologist here thought leader and you know thank you so much for sharing all these amazing thought but what else are you passionate about um when chris has kept his laptop down or kept his mobile down what is chris's favorite activity to do so the uh so on, on the tech side i actually still quite enjoy doing the macros and cc macros or there's something which i've always found fascinating i think they're really um the outside of that you know i i love to ride my mountain bike i'm a big motorcycle fan i've got all sorts of motorbikes and including an electric one which i think is awesome um the one of the things i don't get is if as as i love bikes and i got petrol bikes and all sorts of them but you know they're all wonderful and fascinating in their own right so i think you know just trying out different things maybe that's just engineer's curiosity um so absolutely that and then of course i've i've got um three wonderful kids at home and i i spend a lot of time with my family so i think fascinating to see um little kids grow up and it's, it's just one of those things that fills your heart with joy so that's, that's awesome yeah so 
as we close, you know, I wanted to ask a question around how do you continue to learn, you know, in your free time and how do you schedule stuff in a way that you're also being a father and being a technologist and making sure that you're up with active on all these projects? Because one of the things that many of us struggle with is that there are a lot of different projects, different things that we are working on. And then we have to deal with children. And how do you keep your passion alive of continuing to learn while being a dad or a family man as well? I think it's just about being passionate in general. So I'm passionate about my kids and my family in the same way I am about technology. So passion breeds curiosity and it makes it not a job and more fun. And that's all that. I think that's really the secret sauce is, yeah, if you care about what you do, you naturally do it well. And it doesn't seem like a chore. The moment it's not a chore, you don't mind doing it and everything just seems to fall together. Awesome. Yeah. It kind of sounds like one of the advices I got was do what you love and then what you love will not feel like a job. Or you won't have a job. You'll just be given money to do play around basically. And so anyway, what I feel that I, that I, I kind of work myself into a position like that, which is um, the great place to be. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris, uh, for all your conversation, for all the conversation and for sharing these insightful thoughts with me. I know we are almost hitting the limit in terms of time. I think this is one of our first conversations and I hope we can have more conversations. But for whatever uh, we could do and whatever we could discuss today, I appreciate it. Once again, thank you for jumping on the podcast. For everyone, uh, you know, Chris is an active member of the community. Um, you know, the can you reply? Uh, Tell us what that community is and how folks can find you or that community itself. Can Chris a little bit more? Yeah, so I'm basically I'm all over the place on them. And probably the best place is LinkedIn, but I post on Twitter and the uh, forums. And then you'll find me over the open source community. So if you're interested in Spark, Postgres, or you, you know, subscribe to the Eclipse Gemo project for that by all means. It's quite interesting. It's got some nice code in there, but I'll be out and about and uh, contributing different bits and bobs of code all around. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for once again taking the time to come on. And thank you so much for jumping on this podcast once again and for your time. Uh, no worries.